You remember how Peter and John were on their way to the temple to pray, and they met a man who was lame from birth, and he was begging, begging for alms. And Peter, in the name of Jesus Christ, healed a man who was lame from birth. And by doing this great deed of power and of mercy, Peter and John found themselves in the crosshairs of the Jewish authorities. And you saw how the Jewish authorities imprisoned Peter and John. They threatened them to be silent under threat of violence. But they did not stay silent. They did not listen to the Jewish authorities. Instead, the believers prayed. And you remember how they prayed in chapter 4, verse 29. They prayed, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed not for the removal of their trials, and when they prayed not for the punishment of those who opposed them, but when they prayed for boldness that they might declare the name of Jesus Christ, God answered their prayers immediately as the believers were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And we saw how starting with chapter 4, verse 32, all the way through chapter 5, verse 11, we saw the immediate consequence of the Holy Spirit filling the believers. The Holy Spirit made the believers of one heart and soul, and they had everything in common. And that was the way that God immediately answered their prayers for boldness. And now in this passage, we see how God continues to answer the prayers of the believers. And we see that God answers with power. God answers with power. Once again, they prayed in chapter 4, verse 29, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. You see, when they pray that, they understood that the, the, the function and the use of signs and wonders, the signs and the wonders that God would perform would be the, the proof, the authentication of the apostles' teaching. And that as the signs and wonders authenticated and proved as true the teachings of the apostles, people would be drawn to Jesus. And so the signs and wonders would grant boldness both to those who spoke the word and those who heard the word. And what we see in verses 12 through 16 is exactly an answer to that prayer. And we see here marvelous ways that God showed his power. He, Peter, in the name of Jesus Christ, of course not Peter, but God's spirit working through Peter healed the sick and restored those who were afflicted with evil spirits. And they were even bringing people 
that Peter's shadow might fall on them and be healed. Now we hear that, and to us it sounds almost superstitious. It sounds weird. What are they doing? But I think what we need to recognize is that at heart, it's really not that different from that woman. You know, the woman who has suffered 12 years with bleeding. You know what she was thinking in her heart? She heard that Jesus was passing by, and she said to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his robe, I will be healed. You see, what we saw with that poor woman and what we see these poor people here is their desperation, longing to draw near God for help and for healing and for restoration. And when they did, God's presence and spirit were so powerfully working through Peter that even the shadow was sufficient (laughs) to heal and, and and restore these people. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us this, and I think this is the central point that we are supposed to take away. It tells us of God's longing for people to hear the word, the teachings of the apostles, to come to his son Jesus and be saved. That is why God so liberally poured out his spirit and his grace and mercies. But we also have to recognize this very real um, phenomenon in that we, as human beings, we are naturally attracted to exciting things. But are we excited by the right things? I think it's actually true what Kierkegaard said. The thief has broken in and he has switched all the price tags so that we are not always excited by the right things. It's very possible, and we actually see that around us, people very excited about the signs and wonders and healing. But we have to recognize that God healing the sick is actually a simple matter. God is all-powerful. Of course he can heal them. And so God healing the sick, there is no scandal here. But God saving the sinners, now that's baffling. Why would God do this? And there is no answer to that question except His undeserved grace, except His unconditional love. You know, what's more fascinating, what's more exciting is that God sent His Son to save sinners, but that sinners crucified Him in spite, and that God raised Him from the dead and made Him both Savior and Lord. These things are far more exciting and interesting than that God could and did heal the sick. And so notice that the apostles' teachings, the ministry of the teaching, ministry of the word, did not serve to glorify the signs and the wonders, but the ministry of the signs and wonders served to magnify 
the teachings. I think sometimes people get this wrong. People think that the ministry of the word magnifies and shines the light on healings when the very opposite is true. Healing signs and wonders magnify the word, the teaching. And I think verse 14 is very easy to overlook. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. It wasn't just those who were healed of their afflictions that were added to the Lord. It was those who heard the message and believed. It is they who are added to the Lord. And so this is the first thing we see of how God answers the prayers from chapter for God answered the prayers, the believers' prayers with power, and with power he drew them into the kingdom of his son. Secondly, God answers with boldness. God answers with boldness. Wherever God's word is proclaimed, we typically see two opposite responses, two opposite results. Some people some people hear the word of God and they are drawn to Jesus. They hear about the creator God. They hear about man's rebellion against God. They hear about the misery of sin that has come and has alienated them not only from God, from one another, that they live in a profound brokenness. When they hear the word of God, it is as though they can finally put into words all the pain and anguish they have suffered and experience in life. It is as though they can finally print towards all the longings of their heart to be made whole. And when they hear the preaching of God's word, they are drawn to Jesus. They come to Jesus by faith and they repent and turn from their ways. That's one way that people respond to God's word. But there is a different way, another way that people respond to God's word and that is opposition. It's fascinating. Two different people could listen to the same sermon of the same preacher at the same time. And one would respond in faith while the other respond with opposition. How do I know this? Because when the greatest preacher who has ever lived preached, that's exactly what happened. Who do I have in mind? With Phil, Calvin? No, I mean Jesus. The greatest preacher who has ever lived when he proclaimed God's word. Some people believe while others rejected and opposed them. And so while some are drawn to Jesus, others oppose the word. Some people do it quietly. They oppose the word quietly through indifference and through apathy. I remember when I was a college student, I belonged to a Christian group on campus, and we had this evangelistic drive, and we made special shirts. And on that shirt, it said, Ask me, I care. And the whole intent of that was, we wanted people to ask us, what is it that you care about? But it backfired in a horrible way, because to our great surprise, Unbelievers were buying these shirts with great enthusiasm because it sounded to them as, ask me if I care. That's what they got out of that 
signage. Apathy and indifference. That's one way that we respond to the Word of God. But other people do it viciously and with violence, and that's what we see here. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. You know, these leaders, they are the very same people who had imprisoned Peter and John. You know, they wanted to harm them, but they feared the people. They had to release them. But before they released them, they threatened them, don't you dare, no more. But what did Peter and John do? What did the other believers do? They so thoroughly disregarded the threat. They paid no no attention. And these leaders, they were ticked off. They were angry. They were upset and offended that their word, how dare they so thoroughly dismiss us? And now they meant to show them what power was. Now, wouldn't you know it? Power does not belong to them because God showed them the true power. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. This is frustrating because that's all we hear. (laughs) I want to say, you know, when you read a sentence like that, you find yourself asking, that's it? Where are the details? How did it happen? If this were a Hollywood movie, this is the scene that's lengthened. This is where you bring the best of CGI. This is the scene where you get the emotionally moving soundtrack attached to in order to highlight this amazing event of angel of the Lord freeing these prisoners. But we don't get any of that because Luke's emphasis and focus is on something else. The angel said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. In other words, the first opportunity they had, as soon as it was bright, they went right back to doing the things that got them imprisoned in the first place. Why? What are they thinking? What's driving them? You see, they had a promise. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus promised, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. They found the courage to face danger and threat because Jesus was with them. So they had a promise. Second, they had the command. Acts 1, 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the world. And again, chapter 5, verse 20. How the angel commanded them, speak to the people all the words of this life. You know, nothing can stop God's people when promise and command drive us. And that's what drove the apostles, the promise and the command. 
and the apostles were unstoppable. Now, so you see how the high priest accused them. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Speaking truth to power is a dangerous business, especially when the apostles' teachings exposed the wicked sinfulness that was so carefully hidden behind a righteous facade. They could not stand being exposed as what they were. They could not allow it. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. Now, generally speaking, God teaches us in his scriptures for believers to honor even godless authorities as his ministers. Actually, that's the word that first Peter uses. The authorities, God calls them his ministers. So generally speaking, it is God's will for us to respect and submit to earthly authorities, not only to the good ones. When Peter wrote that in 1 Peter, he was writing under the reign of Nero, a man notorious for being wicked. But we must also obey God rather than men. And now the question is, how do we know when is the right time and how do we know what issue is not up for negotiation? Well, we need great humility and wisdom. We need to recognize that perhaps not all the battles we fight in God's name may be for God's honor. And if we carelessly attach God's name to every battle we fight, we may actually be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain in violation of the third commandment. So this is a very complicated issue, but generally speaking, we need humility, we need wisdom to recognize that not everything that we attach God's name to may in fact be for God's honor. And generally speaking, we should not be fighting battles over our convenience and preferences. Jesus, our Lord, he calls us to take up our cross and die. The call to discipleship is a call to self-denial. It means, at the very least, we do not fight in God's name for our own interests when Christ calls us to die to our own interests. If you want to fight, fight for your neighbors. If you want to fight, truly, let it be for God's name. And we can't be fighting battles in God's name because we resent Jesus is called to follow him while taking up our cross. But what did the apostles do? 
the apostles took their stand for the gospel. They took their stand for the gospel. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. That's where they stood, firm, immovable, faithful, not negotiating, not listening to men, but obeying God, that God, He is holy and righteous. He is the God who spoke to our fathers, made covenant with us, and bound us to Himself in the covenant obligations. But we have sinned. We have fallen short of His glory. But despite the fact that we have ignored his word over and over again, we have killed his prophets, God, he sent his son. But rather than receiving him with faith and love in our hearts, you turned against him. You killed him. You rejected him. But God raised him from the dead. And he made him Lord, leader, and savior. So what do you see here? Jesus' death, resurrection, his lordship, his salvation by grace. This is what we need, boldness. This is where we stand firm. This is where we do not move. And where did they get this boldness? You know, the boldness that they had is not natural because this boldness was an answer to prayer. You see, this is the answer to the prayer in chapter 4. And that is a wonderful news. You know, even the most gregarious and outgoing of us will find it very difficult, if not impossible, to be bold for Jesus when the only response we get is ridicule, criticism, opposition, and rejection. You can't stay the course if you rely on your natural propensity, strengths, or gifts. But the boldness which stood firm against threats and spoke God's message, that was a boldness given as an answer to prayer. You see, it, it's not required that you are born an extrovert in order to be a witness for Jesus. That's not where the strength comes from. The boldness comes from prayer. And we can pray. And God will give us the boldness. Thirdly and finally, God answers with joy. The authorities were enraged, and they wanted to kill them. But Gamaliel, he was a Pharisee, a very well-known, very well-respected scholar, and he intervened. Uh, it's that Gamaliel who, uh, who was Paul's teacher. Uh, the apostle Paul learned uh, under this very scholar. And he himself did not believe the apostles' messages, but uh, he had a reputation as a man of gentle temperament. And uh, when he intervened, not even the Sadducees could refuse him. 
And I find this very encouraging and fascinating. Just when we think the apostles had no help, God has placed his help just in the right place at the right time. And how thrilling is it to realize that this this honored, well-learned scholar that has spent years of his life studying, earning the respect and the reverence of his community for the purpose that he, unbeknownst to him, might come to the aid of God's people. You know, that was, let me assure you, that was not his life's purpose. That was not his life vision. But how thrilling is it that God, just when we think we have no resource and help, he has already placed in the right places and the right time everything we need in order to serve him. However, his advice uh, needs some comment. Gamaliel gave examples of failed movements and said of Christianity, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. That's what theologians call overrealized eschatology. (laughs) What that means is, his advice, you know, it's true in the long run. But in the short term, his advice is proved false over and over again. Um, in the long run, in terms of eternity, yes, only God's will stand. God's will will stand. But all around us, we see the wicked prosper, not just for a moment or two, sometimes for generations. And so we cannot navigate life following Gamaliel's advice to think if something is successful, if something endures, then it has God's blessings. You know, when you look at a cultish movement that has become very wealthy and successful in human terms, you cannot look at that and say, obviously God has blessed it. That's not how it works. So Gamaliel's advice, it's a useful advice, and in the long term it is true, but in the short term, as a guide for life here and now, it is unreliable. We should rather follow the apostles. Notice how they left the presence of the council after being beaten, and by that it probably means 40 lashes minus one. It was the typical way that the Jewish authorities punished those they deemed insolent and worthy of punishment. Uh, It was supposed to be 40, but minus one lash was meant to be an act, uh, act of mercy. But no one who found himself at the end of the lashes would have ever thought that sparing that last lash was a merciful deed. In other words, they left the presence of the council with their backs bleeding, likely their skins torn up in severe pain. I wouldn't be surprised if some of them had to be carried out. But they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, 
What's going on? Do these people have no feelings? Of course they do. They simply trusted Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For us, when we think about suffering for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, that suffering feels like a burden. We might even recognize and acknowledge that it is a noble burden, but it still feels like a burden. It is so far from the way that the apostles responded because they rejoiced. And the only reason you rejoice is because they saw the opportunity to suffer for the sake of Christ not as a burden, but as a gift from the Lord. A gift. It's as if the Holy Spirit has come into their hearts and rearranged all the price tags. What the authorities did in, in order to afflict them and to make them suffer, these apostles realized were precious gifts from the Lord, and they rejoiced. Could you? Could you rejoice? May the Lord bless us that we may see the beauty of this gift. Suffering for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is not, it's not a curse. It's not a misfortune. It's not a burden. But it is a precious gift in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for teaching us from your word today and for opening our eyes. And we pray, O oh Lord, for that same boldness. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would grant us the spirit of your Son to fill our hearts daily, that we may be bold in this world and speak your word without fear. May the name of Jesus Christ, his work, his life, his death, his resurrection be the treasure of our hearts. May we speak with love and with conviction. May we speak with faithfulness and with gentleness. So help us to be, O oh Lord, men and women who treasure the gifts that you have given us. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.